Hi, everybody. I'm Sunny, and this is We Gotta Talk, a live weekly digital talk show and podcast where we like to dig deep. Real talk, big topics. Now, let's dig in. Hey, everybody. Welcome to We Gotta Talk, where it's all about real talk on big topics. I'm Sunny. I'm so glad you're here. Like, not anything serious today. We're not doing any big topics, anything that will impact your life directly. However, if you have been immersed in Prince Harry's new memoir, Spare, you are in the right place. We're doing the final episode. I got through the final third of the book. I put. I think I dedicated 17 hours in total of listening time to this. As I've said before, worth the listen. Hearing the emotion come through as he reads his own words is pretty powerful. Anyhow, we're going to kind of plow through the beginning part of this because there's a lot of um, talk of his time in the military and wrapping up of relationships. This is the part of the book where he breaks up finally with Chelsea Davey, even though he loved her. He loved everything that she was about, but he recognized that this was not a woman who would have any interest in living her life in the spotlight. Um, We go through parts of William and his relationship to Kate and that kickstarting. We talk about, oh, we're going to have to talk about this. The trip to the North Pole, a once in a lifetime opportunity for Prince Harry that just so happens to happen right, I think, the week before William's wedding. But I really want to dedicate most of this episode to talking about the stuff that's been most recent and most familiar to all of us. So since he met Meghan, um, you know, I didn't really care. I still don't really care too much about royal family happenings. I'm much more engaged in it um, now than ever because of Meghan and Harry and, um, you know, the pulling back of the curtain of it all. Um, So, yeah, let's speed through some of the beginning stuff. Okay, trip to the North Pole. The once-in-a-lifetime opportunity that Harry feels he has to go on. So this happens the week or so before William's wedding. Um, He gets there. We find that Harry finds purpose and peace in this book, most often in nature. Um, You know, we've heard him or read about him doing all this charity work in Africa or spending time on safari or spending time, um, you know, working with conservation groups. It's one thing to read headlines about him dedicating his time to that. It's another thing to hear him tell about the impact that it had. These like stretches of time where he got to get away from the glaring lenses of the media and find himself. It seems to me that this is what defined him as a human. It's it's almost like um, when you to hear him talk about it, he was just surviving in Britain, but when he would go to Africa or go on these um, extreme trips, i.e. to the North Pole and later to Antarctica, that he really thrives and grows. Those times where he says he treats that physical labor like a meditation, even when he talks about the military, which in this part of the book, we're kind of wrapping up his career in the military. And I don't want to get too into that. I mean, if you're a guy, you might love all of that. A large portion of the middle part of this book, in fact, almost all really of part two is dedicated to um, Harry's time in the military, either trying to get in Uh, you know, into battle or get, I don't know, I don't know what the word is, oh, deployed somewhere officially or training for something. So if you love that and you love the detail and he describes in great detail what it's like to fly an Apache helicopter and and the strength that it takes to, you know, hover it and to land it, if you love all that stuff, you're going to love 
part two and into the top of part three of this book. Um, that's sort of the arc of his growth as an individual. And it's interesting to listen to from that perspective. But you know, I, want, I like the gossip of it all. So part three was really interesting for me because this is a part of his story where we're all most familiar with as Americans, at least. Again, not someone who invested much time in reading really anything about the royal family ever um, until Meghan came along. So like her or not like her, I mean, this girl has <laughs> has made a whole country more interested in the monarchy. So um, anyhow, so yeah, the North Pole trip, this is the part um, I feel like that has been excerpted the most by people on social media or discussed about. Um, he arrives at the North Pole within about 200 miles. No one told him that you can't sweat or you shouldn't sweat because sweat immediately turns to ice. So he's working hard. He's pulling his gear and he gets frost nip. Another delightful, um, just close enough word in British English, of course, of what we call frostbite. I didn't complain, he says. How could I among that bunch? It's like a group of, I, I don't know if there were military veterans on this trip with him. There might have been, but just a bunch of tough guys, right? So he's like, listen, I'm, I'm here. I'm getting to see a place that so few people get to see. I'm not going to complain about this. Um, he's in a rush to get back to Britain for his brother's wedding. So he hops, tries to hop on the plane, fly back. He's frostbitten. He's uncomfortable. Um, and then the runway on this one small airport we has to f fly out of um, cracks due to a storm that came through. So he has to whatever um, this whole thing. But this is the this is Harry finding himself. He's, he talks really poignantly about a part of the trip where he uses the walk through the snow as almost a type of moving meditation. Something he learned in the military is to be the pain, to be the struggle, to make yourself one with the conditions that are challenging you. So you, you know, it becomes the sort of meditative exercise for him. Again, he comes alive when he's away from his family. I gets back to Britain for his brother's wedding. He says the public had been told that I was to be the best man, but that was a barefaced lie. William's friend was the best man. So apparently the reasoning behind this is because if the public knew who the real best men were, the press would just dig in on their lives and it would be just incredibly uncomfortable for everyone. So this is one of those lies that the palace doesn't address publicly in an effort to protect those people involved. And and this part, part three of the book, is where we see the power of the press really... Um, and, and how it impacts their lives. So it's really interesting from something small like this to some of the bigger things we get to later where Megan is being accused of bullying or bad behavior. We see how the press um, is used and manipulated by the royal family. And it's sometimes to their benefit and it's sometimes to their detriment. So something small like this, right? Family's not going to go out and say, oh, no, it's actually Joe and Dave who are William's best men. They let that lie live. They're comfortable with letting certain mistruths be published when it makes their lives easier. When it doesn't, that's a different story, but we'll get to that. Um <laughs> Uh, yeah, so this is a note I wrote down. So they're getting ready for William's wedding at a pre-wedding dinner. And that's where Harry tells Pa about his, quote, tender penis from Frostbite. He says, quote, my penis was a matter of public record. And my note on this was, I mean, for someone who doesn't even hug his dad. Hmm, this is like a strange conversation to have. It's so weird because there are moments of really intense connection 
that Harry recounts between him and his father, um, times where they talk about, like we said in, I think it was episode one, his father being bullied. I mean, really vulnerable um, sort of heart opening discussions. And then on the other hand, you hear him say, this is a man who never even hugged me, who um, kept his distance from me, who it's just so weird. So you don't talk about, you don't call your dad to sort of check in like, hey, dad, what's going on? But you tell him about your penis being frostbitten. It's very like, it's very extreme. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, doing the walkabout. I'm just reading my notes here. Uh, da, da, da. Okay. So right before William's wedding, they do a walkabout. And um, given the sibling rivalry that exists between these two men, between William and Harry, it's really refreshing to see these moments of tenderness. And they seem to get fewer and far between as the book goes on. Um, He talks about a walkabout they do and how they greet fans and royal watchers the night before the wedding. And it's really a moment of bonding for them. Um, He says one of the happiest days of his life, meaning William's life, and there was simply no way of avoiding the echoes of his worst day, our worst day, worst day. Um, Talking about, of course, the times when they're seen in public together are really triggering for Harry because it brings up memories, of course, of them greeting and being together in public after the death of his mom. Harry says, quote, nothing like getting married in the same place you had your mother's funeral. Why did the adults do that to us? He's referencing, of course, the time um, where they were forced to walk behind their mother's coffin. He says about the venue where William and Kate were to be married. It's Westminster Abbey, I believe. Quote, everything in that building spoke of death. More than 3,000 bodies lay beneath us, behind us, buried under pews, wedged into walls. Newton, Dickens, Chaucer, 13 kings, 18 queens. It was still so hard to think of mummy in the realm of death. Mummy, who had danced with Travolta, who'd quarreled with Elton, who dazzled the Regans. Could she really be in the great beyond with the spirits of Newton? Between the thoughts of mummy and death, I was in danger of being as anxious as the groom. So he tries to crack some jokes. He even uh, jokes about forgetting the wedding ring. But he says nothing really seems to stop William from appearing worried. Um, No matter his distaste of his position in the family, you always get a sense that he has a real deep abiding loyalty to playing into the role that he was born into. The jester, the supporter, the spare. Um, William and Harry have a real, at least as told from Harry's point of view, have such an interesting dynamic in their relationship where you see Harry sort of buck against this spare um designation, this idea that he's always second or further in line, that he'll never be as useful or as good as his brother, and he hates it. Yet at the same time, he knows that he needs to lean into that role for the sake of his brother sometimes. At the wedding, Harry says, quote, I recall thinking goodbye. I loved my new sister-in-law. I felt she was more my sister than in-law. I was pleased that she'd forever stand by Willie's side, but in my gut, I couldn't help but think this was yet another farewell under this horrid roof. He'd never again be just Willie. Who shall separate us? Life, that's who. Um, um, These are all quotes from the book. And he says, after saying their vows, people tended to disappear. And he references his father and Camilla getting married too, um, which I wrote, wow, the irony of this line. So um, 
we heard in part two of the book the sort of difficulty he has accepting his father's new relationship with Camilla and how not only he the fact that he has a distrust for her as an individual and understandably so this was a woman who uh, by some accounts helped to break up his parents marriage um but another real ringing theme between Harry and Charles and Camilla is just the sense that when they're when his dad got married again he was losing him everything that the world generally sees as a celebration i.e a wedding or an engagement Harry tends to see as a loss or as a death. And when he says, after saying their vows, people tended to disappear. Fast forward another, what was it, five years? He, him saying his vows with Meg and then disappearing from his family, the irony is just so, so strong. Okay, back to some discussion of his second deployment in the military. He talks about... Uh, this was, uh, gosh, I can't remember what the name of the case was, but where the, there was some issue between Mur the Murdoch uh, media empire being sued for tapping into people's voicemails and Harry's sheer delight at, you know, the media being held accountable for their evil and blah, 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 blah. We hear more of that. This is where he meets Cressida Bonus at a music festival. Cressy, as he says, the setting was inauspicious, but the setting, uh, but the relationship was good. There were sparks. Um, she was a girl who wanted to be an actress. She was shy. She was into him. But more than anything, this was a woman that William and Kate, quote unquote, loved, according to Harry. Um, she was also the girl he was dating when he went to Vegas. His infamous Vegas trip. And we get into this in this portion of the book as well. He was actually the one who suggested strip pool which was, of course, the infamous image that was captured. Was he in his underwear or was he naked? I can't remember, but he's playing pole. And is it pool? <laughs> I don't know. It's pool, right? It was harmless, silly, so I thought, until the next day. Um, he says, how would I let it happen? He was actually most worried, Harry says, that his bodyguards would lose their jobs and that he had counted on the strangers in that room that night to show some goodwill. He kind of dimes out two cocktail waitresses that he had invited upstairs and says that they were the ones that were responsible for the photo leaking. Um, he's just still such a child. He talks on this trip about wanting to get a tattoo. He wanted to get a foot tattoo of Botswana when he was just messed up in Vegas. And they were like, no, 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 we're not going to do that. And instead, they went upstairs, they started playing pool, and the rest is history. So it's a, it's fun to hear his version of that kind of um, kind of be told. Um, back to his second deployment, and this is the part of the book where we talk more about that, and lots of allegories between um, learning to fly an Apache and sort of learning to control his own emotions and life and blah, 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 blah. As he gets back home after that deployment, he comes back home, and this is where shit starts to get real, for lack of a better term. Uh, he's 29. He's not married. Everything makes him feel inferior. His birth order, the fact that his um, his brother has moved on with his life. I think at this point, they're pregnant with their first child. He really loved being a soldier. Now that is something that he's no longer able to do. The birth of Charlotte puts him even further down the chain, which in all fairness, when he's questioned about, he says, listen, this is not something I care about whatsoever. He uses the, um, the um, what's it called? The metaphor of being 
farther from the center of the volcano. And that's a good thing. He's like, why does every time a child is born, I get asked, uh, you know, one of William's children born get born i'm asked the same question which is are you disappointed that you're further from the throne and he says no i'm actually really really happy to be farther and farther from that potential role uh, um so his harry's single life involves i find this hysterical um first of all living with his father for a time which is just like not something that i ever associated with the royal like moving back home with dad he talks about having just a complete disinterest in a lot of regular life. In fact, he, he calls himself agoraphobic at one point. He says he has no interest in looking a certain way. In fact, he likes shopping at TK Maxx, which is obviously the British version of TJ Maxx. And I don't know why it makes me giggle. Just swap out the J for a K. It's the same thing. He said he loved to get deals on off-season Gap and J Crew. If it looked nice and was comfortable, into the basket it went. He said he shopped once every six months, right before the store would close with his bodyguards. He would go in, didn't even try things on. He just like went through a couple of bins, got a couple of three packs of t-shirts and called it a day. Um, but really, truly, he was living through a much darker time than the world was realizing. He said he had panic attacks regularly at events, but Williams still seem, didn't seem to get it. He didn't understand why he was suffering from panic attacks, what was really going on. And Harry talks about using psychedelics to help him understand that there was more to him than his panic attacks. There was more to reality than what we experience in our day-to-day -day lives. He really finds his purpose in Africa, in his work for veterans. And we start at this point in the book to really see him take a journey to discover what is happening with his mental health. And at one point, he says, William expresses some anger about Harry continuing to do work in Africa. Now, Harry's like, listen, you're married. You are the future king. Your two of your children were just born. Um, why can't I have Africa as my cause, as as the reason for, you know, my, my patronage, essentially? He says, we can do it together. And um, this is a really funny quote, so I wrote it down. He said, William said, or Willie, quote, I let you have veterans. Why can't you let me have elephants and rhinos? <laughs> to think of the future king of England saying, why can't you let me have elephants and rhinos is just too rich to not include as a direct pulled quote from this book. Um, I don't know why. Oh, 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 okay. So here's the point of the book where Harry is visiting some friends in the U.S., and I did not know this before, but this friend of a friend um, or this friend of his like maybe, or a friend of a friend was friends with Courtney Cox. They end up crashing at her house. He does mushrooms at a party at her house. He does this, goes on this whole trip where the moon told him that something big would happen in 2016. And he goes through like this, these revelations that he's experiencing while using psychedelic drugs. It's actually really hysterical he goes through this whole story about how he went to use the powder room in Courtney. i think it was still courtney cox's house and he talks about all the clean modern lines of the house and how beautiful it was and he goes into this bathroom that's just decorated really simply but really beautifully and how the toilet starts talking to him it's just wild um yeah okay part three this is the megan part of the book 
as we've heard recounted in various news uh, stories since this book came out, Harry first sees Megan as a dog filter Snapchat video. He says he was sitting alone as he did um, in his boring single life, scrolling through social media one day and on one of his friend's Instagram stories, um, comes across this video of a woman with his dog filter on her face. He says, this woman stopped the conveyor belt. She smashed the conveyor belt to bits. What I thought was really interesting here, so he, he reaches out to his friend. He's like, who is this girl? She gives Meg Harry's Instagram. Meg starts following Harry. And Megan messaged Harry on Instagram first. And in one of their first online discussions, I believe this was... Oh, no, no, this was something in person. Okay, so they message back and forth. They begin to text. To be honest, little level of shock there that she was the one who reached out first. Now, I know we've heard Megan say time and time again, and I do believe her that her level of familiarity with the royal family was quite low. I mean, you know, like like I've said before, we're not raised in this country to pay much attention to that, right? We bow to no one. Like, you know, we're kind of like badass like that. <laughs> anyway, but she knows who Prince Harry is. And I, you know, points to Meg for making it look cash, but still dropping into his DMs and being like, hey, I really like your photography. But we know that he's the prince at this point. So you can't help but think, okay, of course, there's like, there's a little flirtation going on here. She knows who he is. Ba-ba-dee-ba. They have their first meeting at Soho House in London. And in one of the first conversations, Harry recalls Megan telling him, I just want to help people. I just want to be free. Um, now, I've had had first date conversations before that have gotten on the deep side of things like on the vulnerable or emotional side of things but i i don't know i don't think i ever it's just interesting to me to paint herself as a humanitarian maybe, maybe she was this is my this is the cynical part of me coming through um and the part that i'm wondering are we just trying to impress the prince um i want to help people and i want to be free i mean i i, I believe that i believe that she thought that I, I do do we lead with that on a first date unless we're trying to keep the ball rolling for more. I don't know. Maybe not. Um, and then she leaves the date early, which I wrote down is a very good, like one of our girl tricks to leave them wanting more. Now, there are a lot of things that my mom taught me in life. And one of them is you just don't chase a man. I believe it to this day. I mean, I'm married now. So, you know, knock on wood, we don't ever need this advice ever again. But this is something I will teach my girls too. You want to be the one who leaves first. You want to be the one who leaves them hanging, you know, wanting a little bit more. You never want to be too available. I know that sounds horrifically like reverse misogynist. And it also comes across as incredibly old fashioned. And it like sort of places women in this inferior role of receiving rather than, you know, directing energy. But I do believe there is something to a dynamic between a man and a woman where you got to leave them wanting more. And I give Megan so much credit. This girl had game from the beginning. We get onto, onto their Botswana trip, and uh, Harry is really impressed by the fact that when Megan digs in her little backpack of goodies, it's, you know, it's fairly lightly packed, and there was no makeup and no face cream, but there was a yoga mat. Really? Nothing fancy? No? I mean, not even a little bit of under eye cream to help with the dry skin in the savannah, but the yoga mat was there. It's just, this is the part of Meg, and, and, and I say this with a renewed appreciation for who she is because believe me I've come I've come a long way in how I've interpreted this woman from afar. Uh, I don't want to say judged because I think that's a little bit harsh of a word, but I, I think I was 
buying hook, line, and sinker into the media narrative there for a while. And it's easy too if you're only reading the same headlines. Um, she is she is intelligent and well-rounded, and I have incredible, incredible respect for this woman. But um, he talked about this scene in Botswana, their their first week-long trip together because they had such a busy summer, and she had this whole eat, pray, love thing planned. But this one week that they both had off that summer happened to coincide. So they go to Botswana, and she, he describes the scene of her unrolling her yoga mat and doing yoga in front of a river in Africa. And I'm just like, this is the... This is like the contrived Meg, right? I mean, is this how an individual can truly be? Um, you know, I want to, I, 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 yeah, she just sounds too good to be true. Um, she, she was giving off strong, low-maintenance girl vibes on this trip. And that could be who she really is. And for that, we appreciate and love her. Um, but, you know, also maybe tactical, I don't know. Every girl wants to be seen as low maintenance. I always say I'm low maintenance as far as like the material things. We don't need new designer handbags around here too much. I don't need new shoes. I don't need new clothing too frequently. But I'm very high maintenance emotionally speaking. I do need a lot of eye contact. I need a lot of deep conversations. I need a lot of, you know, not like need, but, you know, prefer. So I just think every girl likes to think of herself as low maintenance. Like, oh my God, like I'm totally the girl who would like hang out. I just love on Sundays hanging out at the bar with a beer and like watching the college games. Okay. Do you? Um, I, okay. There are girls like that. I shouldn't say that. I'm sure you're out there. I'm just saying some of this from a woman's perspective can be tactical. And you know this, if you're a girl and you're a straight girl, you know what you're putting out there in the first few months. You don't want this guy to think you're some high-maintenance actress diva or whatever version of you, you know, that requires the most attention and primping. You want to put out those vibes. All I'm saying is Megan's game is strong from the beginning. Um, okay, quick, quick hard left here. He gets into his first um, discussion with a therapist about his mom's passing. And I'm going to get into this with our therapist friend who's coming on next week to sort of dissect this book as a whole. But chapter 26 of part three, um, he's meeting with this therapist and she says, he says she calls him a 12-year-old traumatized Harry. I mean, have we not been saying that since the beginning of this book? Not to brag, but do we think I should be a therapist part-time? Like, maybe I should work on my licensing. Because all that has come through in Harry's multiple interviews, both on TV and in print, uh, since they've started this whole media blitz, is the fact that Harry is 12 years old inside. He has remained emotionally the same from the point of his trauma onward. Not all the time. I'm not saying this is still the case. But anyway, all I'm saying is this is the part of the book. He finally cries again. And at first he says he's really offended by the fact that this therapist thinks that he's stuck in the past. But then he realizes maybe I am. And I may maybe need to get through it. All right. Invictus game stuff. This is all interesting and great. This is his passion. This is sort of a marriage of his... Um, desire to help veterans and his desire to do good in the world. And you really feel this is a man who truly, truly loves what he does when he does it. And I admire that about Harry. Um, he leads with his vulnerability in a family where it's really, really difficult to do so. Now we get to the point in the book where Harry's starting to in, um, introduce Meg to the family. And he talks to his dad on one of the first conversations they have when it's getting more serious. Um, and Charles says, 
there's just not enough money for you. And he says, how much could it possibly cost to house and feed Meg? It was suddenly clear that this wasn't about money. What he really couldn't stand was someone new dominating the limelight. He had lived through that before and had no interest in doing it again. So Charles and Meg have had a, a pretty good relationship from an outside perspective. He partially walked her down the aisle at their wedding, as we remember. Harry talks really fondly about the way they connect over music and culture and arts. But it's so interesting to see Charles' dark side pop up and how he could potentially be triggered by Meg's magnetism. This is another strong, powerful woman, and we know how Charles feels about strong and powerful women. No diss on Camilla, but no one's watching what she's wearing. No one's following the charities too closely that she's working with. I mean, not in a rude way. I'm just saying she doesn't have the X factor. Diana did. Meg, to an extent, does as well. And, you know, to the extent that they let her show that off in the royal family, that is. Um, and so Charles is simultaneously, it seems, smitten um, by his his son's new girlfriend slash fiance and also completely threatened by we get to the point of the book of the proposal oh wait no 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 no! i can't believe i forgot this part okay so harry is told things are getting serious you have to ask the queen for permission to get married he pulls her aside i believe at balmoral or one of some kind of outdoor trip where she's physically sort of isolated from her aides for a time he said, I was told I have to ask you permission to marry her. And the queen replies, well, then I suppose I have to say yes. Now, Harry is like, whoa, was that like shade? I have to say yes. Did that mean she doesn't really want to say yes? Or was she just simply using a play on words? But in typical royal fashion, he never gets a chance to ask her true meaning. He just accepts it at face value. He proposes and they're back in the cottage. They're cooking a dinner. He pops out a bottle of fancy champagne one night. He's like, got the ring ready. Um, and <laughs> again, okay, this is, a, our, this is another Meg moment. So help me out here. He gets two champagne flutes, the bottle, and he heads outside he, where he has a, a picnic blanket prepared. And he's got Guy the dog out with him. And he's like, Meg, can you join me outside? And she's like, what's this about? I mean, we know what this is about, Meg. I, I don't know if he is. Is it the way he's retelling this story? Is the ignorance feigned? I mean, every woman knows who, who's discussed engagement with their significant other at some point. You're on the lookout for that ring from point one after that discussion happened. I mean, it's just like it, it's a countdown. She knew what was going to happen. I think she knew it was going to happen. Um, the, the proposal goes beautifully. Uh, this wasn't discussed in the book, but remember she she FaceTimed her Canadian friend during during the proposal. Remember that? Do we like I, I don't know that I would. I love my friends dearly. I just don't know that I would FaceTime them during my proposal. Anyhow, um, interesting. That part was not discussed in the book, but that was like a separate headline. Um he also has to ask the queen for permission to keep his beard for his own wedding. I wrote so many requests. From Granny. Sheesh. It's just, it's insane. So the smallest things in the royal family trigger the, the biggest fight sometimes. I wrote this down as the beard fight. William becomes angry at Harry for even asking permission to keep his beard. They bickered over it. William always thought that Granny had a soft spot for Harry and it, quote, irked him. The argument over Harry's beard went on for over a week. What? At one point, William even tried to utilize his position and force Harry to shave his beard. Quote, because I wasn't allowed to keep my beard for my wedding. 
Harry says he hated the idea of me enjoying a perk he'd been denied. He apparently also, William didn't get to be married in the uniform of his choice, but Harry did. Um, just this this weird sibling rivalry again. They fight over the weird, the future king of England forcing his brother to shave his beard because you got what I want. It's just like very playground, the, the, the playground dynamics of it all. Fighting over a frock coat, I wrote, because apparently William was forced to wear this in not very flattering military uniform for his wedding but harry got to look cute this is not very this is not very princely to me and i think it's so funny that small things take them down just like they take down us common folk uh the stag party nothing interesting happens there there was some argument in the palace over whether or not meg could wear a veil as a divorcee <gasps> the drama of it all and finally we get to the dress drama apparently all of this drama started happening right when Meg's dad was causing trouble in the media. Kate texts Meg and says, Charlotte's dress is too big, too long, too baggy. And Meg responds, right. And I told you the tailor is standing by at KP, Kensington Palace. Megan then asked, Kate, are you aware of what's happening with my dad right now? Like, meaning, I got some drama happening? Like, I, you know where the tailor is. Get your daughter's dress fixed. And Kate said she was well aware and Kate also had other problems with the way Meg was planning the wedding. Something about a party for the page boys. And again, Meg is found on the floor sobbing when Harry arrives home, telling him what happened in this discussion about the uh, flower girl's dresses with Kate. Harry says then Kate shows up the next day at the house with flowers. She apologizes. And he talks this up to just a simple misunderstanding. But as we know... It becomes so much more than that. By the way, I wouldn't talk like that on text message to anyone that I remotely either cared about or would have to deal with in a close capacity in the future. Um, I, you know, they talk about the sandwich method, start with something nice, get to the meat of it, end with something nice. I just feel like there's, that's not at all how they talked. Charlotte's dress is too big, too long, too baggy. And Meg replies, right. And I told you the tailor is standing by KP. There's there's no nice way to read either of those messages. I feel like the claws were out from the beginning. And maybe the dirty little secret behind all of this is Meg and Kate just really never liked each other. Or there was some tension to start with. And maybe they just don't have to be friends. Maybe they tried to force this too much. That's not a text exchange where I sense any warmth. And for someone who... On both sides, you would think they would be equally invested in creating a relationship where there was respect. And even if you were frustrated, you don't respond in a short way on text message. I feel like that's kind of on both of them at that point to just choose kindness, you know, as like the kindergarten teachers always say, choose kindness and not go the snippy route. I feel like they kind of both, they both did it to each other on that one. Uh, the wedding goes by without a hitch. It's beautiful. Another one of these gorgeous um, metaphors that Harry uses in this book, and I don't know if this comes from him or the ghostwriter, Meg's ring was made from, quote, the same hunk of Welsh gold that Kate's was made from, which the queen said by that point was almost gone. The last of the gold. That was how I felt about Meg. Oh, he loves her so much. Guys, it's really hard to dislike people who just are so genuine in their emotion and love for each other. And I know that they've been the source of a lot of controversy in this family and in the media. But I do feel like this is a this is like a ride or die couple. I don't know. I just um, he, the, the, the blind adoration with which he speaks about his wife. It's actually quite charming. Um, and he does address the small, unofficial, non-binding ceremony except in our souls, that he had with Meg, um, with the Archbishop a couple of days before the wedding. Um, there was a whole 
you know, media drama about that that came out. They had, they talked about this in, in an interview and all the headlines came in, out and said, well, that was never official. And Harry's like, no, it was never meant to be official. We just did that for us. Um, oh, Meg's bad joke. So she's getting into the family now. She's getting acquainted with the way the royal family does things. There's some rough spots along the way. For the trooping of the color ceremony, apparently Kate asked Meg, what do you think? And Meg said, it was colorful, jokingly. And then Harry writes, a yawning silence threatened to swallow us whole. I mean, they don't have the same sense of humor. I think it's kind of fun. I mean, you know, it's dorky Meg. We love Meg for who she is. And uh, I don't, is that offensive? I don't know. If you're British and listening, I, I, I don't know. Is Was there something offensive in that joke? Please educate us. Um, they talk about the Queen and Meg's trip where Meg said they bonded. They talked about Meg wanting to have children and just these warm moments, but she still got bad press. And this is the beginning of the end for Harry and Meghan and Britain. The press is, is in, his, in his mind, just relentless in their evisceration of Meg. She got bad press because she didn't wear green to a certain engagement, which was seen as a sign of disrespect. She got flack for getting into the car before the queen, even though apparently the queen had told her to in that moment. She got flack for not wearing a hat, even though the palace told her she didn't have to or didn't even address it at all. Harry says at this point, I wish the palace would step forward and correct this misreporting, but they didn't. Another small lack of action on the palace's part that you can start to tell is really building up in Harry's mind. A tea to clear the air. So Meghan and Harry and William and Kate meet at Will and Kate's place to hash things out. The dress drama had happened, the trooping of the color joke, all these little things, the borrowing of the lip gloss in an event that Meg um, apparently kind of, uh, I don't want to say frustrated, but kind of, it kind of grossed Kate out that Meg asked to borrow her lip gloss before an event. Again, protocol that maybe she wasn't aware of not that big of a deal in my mind but all these little things that have been happening um harry uh, yeah harry and meg arrive they compliment them lavishly on the renovation of their home expensive paintings beautiful books finishes they start with some small talk and then they get right into the nitty-gritty there was some tension harry says where kate thought that meg wanted her fashion contacts meaning her contacts in the fashion world who would presumably be dressing her for events but meg's like no girl i got my own i don't need it so that was a fight um william and kate were apparently also upset that meg and harry didn't give them easter presents but harry's like i didn't know this was a thing then megan and harry expressed they were angry that william and kate moved their name cards at their wedding but william and kate denied it and Harry says, none of this airing of the grievances was doing us any good. He said Kate was gripping her chair so tightly her fingers were white. And another thing that Kate brought up that she believed she was owed an apology for was Meg referencing her, quote, baby brain. I talked about this on Instagram. Baby brain is a phrase that a lot of women use as sort of a point of bonding. And apparently that's not how things are done in the royal family. Sorry, sorry about the delay there, guys. A uh, little peek behind the curtain. A little break in the fourth wall here. I had to um, <laughs> go to a training session with my dog, who is intent on eating me alive. You would not believe. I mean, you would if you had a puppy. I, there's probably 75 scratches all over my body. I'm his beta bitch. I'm just, <laughs> there's no recognition of authority from this dog to me. He loves Andrew. He's good with the kids. He chases me around like I am. I, 
it's insane. Anyway, sorry about that minor delay. I do. I want to get back into royal talk and distract myself from um, what's going on in my real life right now. Okay, so we're talking about the baby brain comment that Meg made to Kate. Now, this is interesting. As I noted in an Instagram reel I did a while back, talk about baby brain, at least in American culture, is sort of a bonding mechanism between women. It's a way of recognizing that no matter your stature or your level in society or your importance in your job, when you have a baby, it's a very difficult and humbling experience for all of us. So we relate by saying, you know, I dealt with that too or whatever. I forgot because of this or that or because of baby brain. And to me, it's seen as an attempted bonding. But from Kate, it was clearly not seen as that. She said, we're not close enough for you to talk about my hormones. I don't know. Is this, again, um, what am I missing culturally between, I know that there are a lot of difference between British culture and American culture, but is it real? Is it more British versus American, or is it more high society versus like regular people? Educate me about this if you know, because this doesn't sound like the biggest breach of privacy to me, or the the biggest overstep. In fact, it sounds so innocuous to me that I'm genuinely confused. But this is the point where William apparently gets in Meg's face and points his finger, and this tea to air the grievances just goes horribly wrong. So the couple's rivalry at this point is officially on. Palace members are taking sides. William is blaming everything on Meg. Meg, in the meantime, according to Harry, is going out of her way to be kind. He says she has, you know, gotten in, spruced up the joint. She's giving away clothes, perfumes, things that were donated to her. She's writing thank you notes. She's writing condolence notes. Harry's just bowled over by her kindness. And Again, I mean, you should love your spouse, so I, this should be a running theme in anyone's relationship, but he is smitten, and he is um, almost worshipful of her, and, you know, maybe the downside to that is that he really can't see any fault in the way that she individually operates or they operate as a couple, and it really makes you understand things from Kate and William's side, like, oh, maybe you never see faults because you completely worship your spouse and you can't really see if she actually did do something that happened to break protocol or happened to break the rules and blah 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 but anyway he's just like you know and here she is doing everything she can and everybody's still hating on her um this is the point in the book where they're trying to have a baby he said meg had been so stressed about what's been what was happening in the press the negative stories that were coming about that she lost weight and it was becoming difficult for them to get pregnant um all the while this is going on, William and Harry are having these conversations um, sort of behind the scenes. And William is calling her rude, difficult, abrasive. He said she alienated, quote, half the palace staff. Harry is wondering, can't can't you cut her some slack? Um, you know, this is someone who's coming into not only a different culture in some ways, but a completely different level within that culture. Um, and here is the fight that has that has been dominating the headlines. So William visits Harry one night at his place while Meg is away, pregnant, visiting some friends. And Harry says, William wanted me to say, agree that my wife was wrong. What did he want me to do to tell her, tell him I was going to divorce my wife that, you know, the love, point a finger at the love of my life and like accept the blame and say, oh yeah, William, you're right all along. We've been doing things wrong and I'm so sorry. And blah, blah, blah. He says, William was in full air mode. He grabbed him by the collar, ripped his necklace, pushed him down. And then he said, don't tell Meg about this. 
I, I'm laughing because he's tough enough to like knock around his brother, but he's like not tough enough to piss off Megan. So he's like, just by the way, don't tell anyone this happened. Um, Harry calls his therapist and discusses it. Of course, he does end up telling Meg what happened with William in this fight they had. And she was she was terribly sad about that. Um, the most disheartening thing to Harry about their household splitting Harry says, was the silence from his family. He hates silence. He hates the lack of emotion. He couldn't understand why his family repeatedly refused to address any bad press about Meghan ever. And there were a couple of instances that he's already brought up in the book by this point where they let smaller lies go. But he's getting to the point now where he's like, this is this is just egregious and all he wants is for someone in the family to come out and deny at least one of these negative stories that's come out about Megan. He says, isn't defending each other the first rule of any family? So they're getting ready now to have their baby, their first baby, Archie. And one of their decisions as they break apart from Will and Kate, remember the Fab Four broke apart, they split households officially. And one of the first rules that Harry and Meg put into place as they established their own household underneath the umbrella of the royal family was breaking with Royal Rota, which is, um, you know, the, the, the press access sort of the the wing of the palace that helps to um, arrange communication between the press and the palace. And he said, listen, our first move when we split households was we're going to break with Royal Rota Protocol. Um, And as the baby is being born, um, we're hearing him talk all about how, you know, the least enjoyable part of this process will be eventually having to share it with the world they were able to have the baby without anybody knowing in fact by the time the story broke they were already back home and recovering now i remember watching this sort of play out in stark contrast to how william and kate welcomed their baby to the world and this is where it gets interesting with what the press or sorry what the public believes they should have access to and this is why the concept of a monarchy is just so silly and outdated and of course difficult to maintain because it makes little sense in many regards, but especially in this, um, you are obligated in in the public's eyes to give updates on your life in exchange for the adoration and the power that that adoration gives you. The price you pay is access, right? And you can manipulate that to an extent, it sounds like, as a royal and control um, access to you at certain points or make sure that it's only done in a favorable light or, you know, you, you just you got to throw them a bone at some point. Um, and this is where Harry, we see Harry and Meg draw the line. They're not even going to do the bare bones basics anymore. They break with protocol. Harry says he doesn't even really feel the need to address the fact that, you know, he didn't alert the press about his wife's labor because he said, I, I, I don't owe them that. He said the press was miffed. They weren't given the whole story. But Harry says, what do you expect? Um, and there was an interesting conversation that happens between William and Harry after the birth of Archie. And as they continue to go back and forth, it sounds like William and Harry have a lot of conversations about Meg's impact on Harry and on the family. And I don't want to say it sounds so outright misogynistic to say the impact she has had. But the bottom line is all of these changes started to happen within the dynamic of the royal family when Harry got married. So whether it were Meg or Jane or Sally or whoever, or Chelsea or whoever he ended up marrying, um, the dynamic of the family is bound to change. But it's interesting that to hear Harry tell it, William is constantly and ceaselessly blaming anything negative that Harry does, or not even anything negative, anything different that Harry does on Meg's presence. And he calls Harry 
brainwashed. Um, I, I can't imagine what it would be like to have a sibling with that much influence and power over my individual life as an adult. But the level that Harry has to deal with in um, sort of recognizing the or the pecking order of things is sounds exhausting. Uh, he has to entertain William's opinion of his relationship in life, not only as a brother or someone that he loves and respects, but also as the future king. And that's got to be exhausting, guys. Um, can you imagine someone coming up to you and saying your spouse brainwashed you? Now, did Harry change? I'm sure he did. After he got into a relationship with Meghan, everybody changes when they, you know, when they get married or enter into a long-term relationship to some extent. Um, so I'm really trying as a reader and as a listener to sort of discern between William's genuine concern about what he perceives to be a complete change in behavior on Harry's part and just the normal stuff that happens when people meet the person that they love. Um, and, and it's interesting, you know, William not only wants things to remain intact in his family, i.e., you know, with his brother and his his father for his family's sake and just this, you know, the general um you know, just keeping the general order of things okay on the personal side, but publicly it impacts him as well because as the person set to inherit the throne, I think the last thing you want is a public perception of disagreement or disarray. So it sounds like William is invested in what Harry and Meghan do, not only from a personal perspective because he presumably cares about and loves his brother, but also because he's like, listen, they're going to mess the whole thing up for all of us. If people stop li stop liking the monarchy, it's not Harry who's going to be impacted. It's going to be me, the guy who's inheriting the throne. And, and, and you start to understand, even though this is obviously a one-sided story, I identify with William's concern of his sibling or concern for his sibling. You want to make sure that the people you love are getting into relationships that 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 keep them in, invested in other relationships that are important. I always say, like, the sign of a good relationship is where the partner encourages the connections that their partner previously had, right? It's always a little bit of a red flag to me when I have a friend, for example, who gets a new boyfriend or girlfriend, and all of a sudden they pull away completely from... Um, from their closest group of friends or their family, or they start to say things that don't sound like them. And this is where I, I, I can sort of understand and empathize where w William is coming from. Now, I don't know to what extent that any of that actually happened. Who knows how much Harry actually changed? In fact, to hear him tell it, Meg was an awakening for him of sorts, or sort of the culmination of all of the self-discovery that he'd been doing on his own anyway. But from the outside, it always looks different to the people that love us because they see us as past versions of ourselves. And William is looking at Harry um, maybe as the person and the prince that he was before and having a really hard time reconciling, okay, this is who my brother is now. And this is him with the therapy and the Western mentality of um, open communication and this very American way of, of living his life with his new American wife. And it's just so different from how we were raised. You can understand William being really thrown off his axis, axis by that. And so, as I've said from the beginning, this book is is a really valuable peek into, obviously, Harry and Meg's perspective. But how awesome would it be to hear from William and Kate or that side of the family and, and have them explain the impact that this um, whole course of events had on them, too? Because even though they're cast as the bad guys, air quote, in this story, I'm sure they have a really compelling reason for... 
um, feeling the way they felt as well. And Harry has a big revelation here at this point in the book. He says, if if we threaten, meaning he and Meg threaten the existence of the royalty for essentially revealing its darker side, then they indirectly threaten the existence of those industries that thrive on them. So that's why he thinks people are trying to, quote unquote, destroy him and Meg. He said, you know, here we are, the catalyst for a lot of this change in opinion about the monarchy. They've been coasting along uh, for better and for worse for centuries and have really survived some pretty bad PR in the past only to be taken down by an American. Like can, the, in, the insult to injury of it all. Can you imagine if the monarchy does end up collapsing, the fact that it happened indirectly at the hands of an American, you know, it's just a little salt in the wound. You know, first the American Revolution and now this. Um, I'm laughing. I think it's partially funny only as Americans. But, um, you know, I understand that the the monarchy, I, I'm not out for monarchy destruction. I understand the, the valuable role that it plays in, in, in British society. But anyhow, I was just saying how ironic would that be? But Harry is finally able to step outside of the world he was born into and say, hey, I'm raising the red flag on things that I perceive to be problems. But I'm only opening myself up to more and more criticism because not only is my family going to come after me because they're concerned about their future roles, but the media is going to hate me even more because the media thrives to an extent off the existence of my family and the monarchy. So I'm taking down two big beasts with one stone. And that's why he is such a threat. That's why he needs security, he says, too. He says we're getting toward the end of the book here and then we'll wrap things up. But he says... I love my mother country and I love my family and I always will. And I just wish they had been there for me in my second darkest hour. And I believe one day they will wish that too. His second darkest hour, I, I believe referencing um, being there for him sort of like after, I, I don't know if it was around when the queen died, but when all this family drama was happening, he perceives just a complete lack of support by his family. He feels more ostracized than ever. He feels more on the outside than ever, which is really saying something because the entire book is about his sense of ostracization. <laughs> I mean, the title of his book is Spare. This man's existence is defined by being the second choice and the second option. And all his life has been sort of a moving down the list of importance as far as the monarchy is concerned, right? You know, with every new heir being born, his his importance goes down a notch or, you know, his, his chance at taking over, not taking over, you know, inheriting the throne goes down a notch. And um, poor Harry, you know, I mean, his entire existence has been defined by his position relative to the rest of the people around him. That's true to an extent in regular families, but not really like it is here. Um What's been really great about this book, to me, is the whole, the royals, they're just like us of it all. Like, we know, ultimately, at the end of the day, that these are humans. And like I said, as Americans, we recognize, um, you know, there, there's no level of social hierarchy here, really, like there is in Britain still, and, and, the, and the great traditions that were passed down, and not only the royal side of things, but all of the levels of higher society that have existed and thrived and sort of um, been their own separate world there for a while. We don't really have a knowledge of that because this is a country built on just um, completely different principles, right? And so... What's interesting to me, having gotten through this book, sorry, as I smack my microphone, is seeing the similarities 
of the highest titled people in the world to the rest of us. They have sibling rivalries. They have difficulties with their families. They have stilted emotional relationships with people around them. They're just people. And what Harry has given us access to in this book is that giant revelation. I wonder what people will think looking back on this decades and decades from now as, as they perceive um, British royal history sort of as a whole or looking back and who knows what will exist 50 years from now. But this has to mark a giant change in some regard, even if the monarchy stays intact exactly as is. This has been the biggest, biggest sort of lifting of the curtain, the peak behind the curtain, the Wizard of Oz moment, because um, we have never had access um, to, to, to the deep, dark, deep, dark, dirty secrets of the royal family as we have now. And what's ironic is that we are more surprised at the sort of commonplace disagreements and um, regular old fashioned style family dynamics that take place in this family than we are at the big scandals. I mean, like, you know, kings have had people killed, <laughs> you know, the chopping off of the heads of it all. And, you know, the the exile, I mean, like king, royal family, like royalty has always done big, bad things, starting wars, taking over countries, big, bad, like the evilest of the evil. But what we're like whispering about the most these days, ironically, is like the small stuff, like the siblings and the and the sister-in-law fights. I mean, that's been the big thing here. It's like, oh, wait, look, we've always known they've done the big, bad stuff, but they have like all the same dirty laundry that we do too as normal people. And that is like what the royal family is most worried about getting out. Like that's the bad PR they're worried about. I'm like, really? Maybe we take a peek back into the history books. I feel like we should feel more shame about some of the other things that have happened. You know what I mean, Anne Bolin? I mean, like, it's just, it's so funny to me that this institution will go on the defensive about a story over flower girl dresses and bullying allegations and will just lose its shit over, you know, Prince Harry having a beard for his wedding and the fact that one brother pushed the other and they're so embarrassed about that. But they're like not really embarrassed of the fact that they have gone in and completely taken over entire countries and islands. This is like, guys, I feel like you've done worse stuff before. So like, don't worry about this stuff. Um, anyway, we're getting to the end of the book now. Um, this is another strong moment. Charles and William called Harry delusional. Um, the, the accusations really just, they're really, they just really continue all the way through the end. The book ends in September of 2022. And it takes us all the way up through the birth of Lilibet. We're not even going to get into the drama of naming her that. I I don't know how I feel about um, naming your child after the head of a family who you've publicly sort of dragged through the mud. And the, the picking and the choosing of who is worthy of our love and who is not. And it is, it, it's, it's a little like, you know, it's a little dirty poker to me sometimes. Like, you know, Harry and Meg want to honor one part of the family, but then they want to turn around the next day and call them racist. And then they want to come back and say, well, we, we actually never call them all racist. We just called them one racist. And there's one person who said something really crappy, but I'm never going to name them. But I'm going to name all the people that didn't say it. So you're going to pretty much figure out that it was my dad who said that. And the, blah, 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 blah. you know, there, there, I think there's a lot of indefensible, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Indefensible actions on both sides of things. And I think if you look at both sides of this argument, kind of using air quotes there, uh, in, in full relief, you'll see that um, each, it, both sides 
are, are equally aggrieved in their own understandable ways. Um, but the book ends on this sort of, as it does with H&M, the very poetic note where Meg just gave birth to Lily and Harry actually helps to deliver her and he helps, you know, guide her from that world to this world is what he says. And they get her home, they get her tucked into bed and they do their skin to skin with the baby. And then Harry says, and then Megan and I did skin to skin later. And I'm like, that's like, is that an allegory for sex? Like what it, we're doing skin to skin as an adults feels weird. Anyway, they're cuddling, I guess. And um, they're, you know, in that rare moment of peace you get after delivering a baby or bringing a, bringing a newborn home. And Meg says, I've never been more in love with you than that moment when I saw you, you know, help bring our baby into this world. And she goes, and again, in typical Meg fashion, just like she ended her Netflix special with rereading her own poem that she also happened to read at their wedding. She ends, or this book ends with the recollection of a journal entry that Meg read to Harry right after Lily was born. And she reads it to him. It's all about her love for Harry, her appreciation for the man that he is. And it ends with the words, that is not a spare. And there we go. The takeaways here, guys. Uh, listen, I feel like they're on pretty solid ground. Like, as a couple, um, they're like, I, I see no break in the future. There's a lot of haters out there who are going to say, oh, you know, this is like bound to end and whatever, how many years, and I don't see this lasting, and blah, blah, blah. And there may have been a time where I viewed this couple with a more um, judgmental lens than I do now after watching the documentary and after listening to this book. Um, but you should listen to this if you're interested in the other side of the story, because the narrative that we've been fed through the media has been, frankly, pretty bad about Meghan Markle. And at the end of it all, the documentary, the book, and I've consumed it all. I've dedicated, what is it, 17 hours of listening to this, plus at least four hours of watching that documentary, maybe five or six. I mean, what, we'll say... 25 to 30 hours of content in total, um, or, you know, through her podcast, like everything after it all, you know, it, it's hard not to like them a little bit. It's hard not to root for them, um, regardless of the decisions they made that may have alienated his family in some way or the judgments I think that we can all make about even how she treated her family, the things we can say without knowing the full story. Sure. But when you hear it from his mouth and from his heart, you feel kind of differently about it. And in typical sunny fashion, I'm not going to land on either side, the Libra of it all. I'm going to sort of stay in the middle. I, I can see both sides of it, but I will tell you this. I understand and empathize with this couple on a whole new level now. And um, it makes it a lot easier to, as a consumer of media, sort of parse the headlines a little bit more to pause before judgment. It's an exercise in humanity. When you look and you taken, uh, you know, someone's story through their words, it's hard to not root for them a little bit. So anyway, guys, this has been so much fun. I cannot wait to bring on our friend Nero Feliciano next week. She is a licensed therapist and psychoanalyst, and we're going to be going through Spare from a true expert's opinion. So I'm really curious to hear her thoughts after listening to... <laughs>
to spare. Oh my goodness gracious. Sorry about that. After listening to her thoughts on spare and get into like the true psychoanalysis of it all. But if you've listened to one or any of these episodes, guys, thank you so much. We're going to be back with regularly scheduled programming on We Gotta Talk next week. We had to take a break this week for various reasons but we'll be back next wednesday live at noon eastern with a live show with a podcast next thursday and that's it thank you so much for listening to this episode of we gotta talk don't forget to rate review and subscribe and follow along on instagram at sunny abata s-o-n-n-i a-b-a-t-t-a all of the latest blog posts are at we gotta talk.com slash blog 